Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, They've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back did you read with tim montgomery welcome to did you read the latest edition of the times opinion podcast my name is tim montgomery and this week i'm joined by daniel finkelstein patrick kidd and anne treneman the recent death of Jerry Conlon and the compensation paid to the wrongly convicted youths accused of raping the Central Park jogger should remind us of the dangers of hysteria and panic to the operation of the justice system. This week, as I review the child abuse debate, I wonder if we've forgotten this. Are we seeing the return of Parliament as a power in the land? On Monday, the Home Secretary repeatedly acknowledged the, quote, relentless campaign by backbench MPs on the issue of alleged child abuse. But there's also the power of the Europhobes who have got the government on the run. I would also say that Mr. Speaker himself, by simply rediscovering something called the urgent question, has made the comments much more relevant. People say Parliament isn't what it used to be. Actually, I think it's growing in importance every year. The warning is stark. To meet a £30 billion black hole in the NHS, we need to cut treatment, raise taxes or pay at the point of use. No one will demand the first, and those who support the second tend to mean raise taxes on those paid more than me. But what is wrong with customer top-up fees for basic treatment, with appropriate exemptions, which could lead to users of the health service demanding better service, rather than cowardly accepting that the sainted NHS is never wrong? So the papers over the last uh, few days have been dominated by allegations of child abuse rings at the heart of the power establishments in the United Kingdom. And Daniel Finkelstein, most people out there seem to give the impression that they think there may be a cover-up at the heart of the establishment, there may be complacency from a lot of of the leading figures in our country, whether it's the judges or the politicians. You're worried about another danger, though, in this whole affair, that hysteria will take over and that potentially uh, innocent people might end up being um, caught up in newspapers, caught potentially going to court, and that they are innocent. 
Yes, we've got a very difficult challenge. We have to deal with the historic allegations. It's clear from lots of other cases not to do with politics that some very serious cases of child abuse were overlooked or people swept them under the carpet and people therefore got away with crimes and other people had not had their cases heard. But while we're dealing with that, we have to remember the needs of justice to accused people as well as to victims. And therefore, we have to keep our feet on the ground. I just looked at two cases which came into the papers really in the last few weeks. The death of Jerry Conlon, the one of the Guildford Four accused, who was accused of something he didn't do in an atmosphere of hysteria in which anybody with an Irish accent was regarded as guilty, who didn't get justice and who persisted in not getting justice even after he was released from jail. Lord Denning was still saying, uh, you know, I think we just couldn't convict them, but we still have the right people. Mm. And the Central Park joggers, there was hysteria about young African-Americans and Hispanics so-called wilding in Central Park and the police totally overlooked the evidence that actually this had been convicted done by one person which is what happened uh, to be the case and they found out later was the case so I just wanted to raise these cases where justice had gone off the rails just as a warning at this moment uh, as we begin this very serious work that we must remember to keep our, a cool head in dealing with individual cases but we, I suppose if you're a member of the public, you've seen the Jimmy Savile episode, you've seen Rolf Harris, Max Clifford, Stuart Hall, you've seen some big institutions, the National Health Service, the BBC, the church, all seemingly involved and complacent about uh, the abuse of, of children, the abuse of minors. The public will look at Parliament and think, perhaps reasonably, Parliament would have been involved in this. As well. well, I think almost all institutions will end up having questions to ask because uh, clearly there was an era in which this wasn't taken seriously enough. I'm certainly not against doing that and not against people asking the questions. It's just that you also have to remember that at the end of the day, you have to try individuals, you have to identify individuals who were involved, and those people are entitled to expect a cool head and a reasonable sense of justice. But and it's important to remind ourselves of that just as we enter into this yeah. period of examination. And Treneman. Well, isn't that really the job of the police and the CPS? I mean, I don't think that there, there's any kind of... We don't have to... No one has to become hysterical, but it's kind of... What I found quite interesting is at the beginning of, the, of all of this, sort of Jimmy Savile, I thought, oh, this, can't, this just can't be true, or this is all hysterical, this is all slightly over the top. Now I'm thinking, well, actually, it, not only was it true, but it seems in Jimmy Savile's case, a lot more was true, um, and a lot more that we still don't know is true. So I think that it's not really, in terms of us, it's not our job to worry about that kind of thing. I mean, the police and the CPS have to do everything on the evidence. They're the ones who'll look at all of that. And, and after being criticised quite a bit at the beginning of these investigations, but the CPS does now the seem CPS, to The everyone CPS is everyone's favourite whipping boy. They, when they get it right, we all don't really give them credit for getting mm. it right. When they get it wrong, we're all saying, oh, we've got to get, have a different system. Mm. Well, <laughs> it's what yeah. it is. Sometimes you get it right. Sometimes the evidence is strong enough for that jury, and sometimes it's not. Danny, quickly, before I bring Patrick in. Yeah, the, the police do sometimes get it wrong because they also atmosphere, act in an atmosphere of this sort of um, the hysteria that's created affects their behaviour and it affects the behaviour of the CPS and I am one of those people who is strongly critical of the CPS because sometimes they get it right uh, and when they don't get it right it's reasonable to be critical and I think there have been moments when they've got it very badly wrong. Patrick, the, the former deputy editor of the Sunday Telegraph tweeted um, a couple of days ago that he thought this is going to be the story of the year 
that this is going to be... Peter Geddon. How big do you think this is going to get? What's your journalistic gut tell you on this? I, I think there's clearly appetite for more stories. But actually, generally, the newspapers, even the more excitable tabloids, are very responsible about what they report. They don't print internet rumour as fact uh, because we're full aware of the financial consequences of that. The trouble is that in the age of the internet and, and, and Twitter, people can, well, a rumour can go around the world in, in a second. Poor old um, Lord McAlpine went to his grave despite having sued people and made it very clear that there was no substance to the rumours about him. He went to his grave with everyone saying, yes, but probably because everyone was talking about it, it must be true. Peter Bottomley has made it clear yesterday that he, he will sue if anyone makes old allegations against him. But again, on Twitter, his name is being associated. And, and, and the Can warning I... is that anyone who's on a trial, so it's just one second, who's, who's on a jury, they can go looking and find rumour very, very easily. I'm mm. not sure how we police that. All we can do mm. as journalists is be more responsible ourselves. Yeah, the internet is a sewer. Um, I think Danny and I have found out recently on sort of Twitter. Anne, Well, I mean, I think any rational person wouldn't pay any attention. I mean, Twitter is just full of people having a pop uh, for sometimes in a completely mad way. And mm. I mean, I, the, the rule about Twitter is don't pay any attention to it because half the people don't know what they're talking about and the other half are just bonkers. Not everybody on Twitter. No, I'm sorry. But, but I, do, do you know what I mean? I mean, I think that social media, we can't control that. And there is hysteria about everything. Everything. There's, there's a, a verdict and everyone's got an opinion. There's a, mm. I don't know, there's a sunset and, you know, there's a huge outrage of something. I mean, it is a bit like that. Uh, you say that you, you think everyone's been uh, responsible in the mainstream media. Well, everyone has uh, said there's a great cover-up of a sort of circle of VIPs connected with each other who's been covered by the Secret Service, which is certainly an eyebrow-raising notion. And I absolutely think it needs to be investigated. And of course, it could be true. It's just that there's absolutely no evidence of it yet, yes, right? Or at least not one, well, not that I've, not that I've seen. And maybe the police are going to reveal all this evidence, and we'll find out that it was all true. And that absolutely hope that that happens if it was true. But I'm just saying that uh, the fact of a large-scale organised cover-up with certainly the idea of some sort of coordinated VIP child abuse ring has run quite strongly and people are completely aware of it without anybody having to present any evidence that it's true. And of course, if there's evidence that it's, that it's true, we should take it extremely seriously. Do, 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 Every scrap of information should be hoovered up. But you say everyone be believes that. I don't believe it. I'm waiting to see the evidence. I, mean, I think that that's what almost everyone is doing. I mean, there are a few conspiracy theorists do you think who Patrick believe it. Well, we're reporting that there the, are claims uh, of a, a circle. We're not yeah. reporting that there was a circle because otherwise that looks like we're hiding something. Yeah. Do, you th do you think, um, Patrick, that part of the reason why people are giving some credibility to this is you know, a lot of it was initially raised by um, Tom Watson, the Labour MP, who also did a lot of the early running against the sun and the hacking gate which of course has now led to uh, Andy Coulson going to jail do you think there's an element of this uh, people seeing this as another cause that he's taken up that will uh, end in end I in confirmation know. of things perhaps Sorry, existing I, I, that are unattractive I, I don't know how Tom Watson how much resonance he has with, with the wider public but perhaps it feeds in for a, with a general cynicism about institutions uh, in, in the current age that they feel that they must all be at it whatever it is <laughs> and the, the latest it they've gone beyond financial impropriety and the theme of the day is, is paedophilia I, I think we're, we're right to report that the, the Eric claims because the Home Secretary has stood up and talked about it but I th think we need to be very careful about 
suggesting there's any credibility behind them or to evidence is presented. Oh, and what do you think, sort of slightly separate but related matter? You know, the Sunday papers had all this, uh, all these stories about Celia and Britain being interviewed about you know, a possible uh, sexual assault from many years ago. He's not been charged, and yet this man's reputation really was, I think, trashed across these papers. Do we worry about people having this amount of coverage pre-charge? I do. I mean, I, th- I think in, in a, a lot of rape cases, actually publicising the fact that someone has been interviewed is possibly prejudicial. Like the former Oxford Union president. Yes. Yeah. I have to say, funnily, strangely enough, given all the other things I've said, I, I can't be in favour of not allowing newspapers to report, to report arrests of people uh, or not to not to report that. I think but This wasn't an arrest, uh, it was just an interview. Yeah, or it? arrests or interviews. Yeah. I, I can't be in favour of the press not being able to cover truth that... that, that yeah they uncover but it's just very important to accompany that by pieces which is what i'll be doing in a paper this week that uh make this point clearly that there are cases where people are innocent uh, even when they are proven guilty let alone before they're proven guilty okay well this sort of leads us neatly into our sort of second and very related topic which is the one you suggested for us Anne treneman and Part of the reason why this is on the agenda, these child sex abuse allegations, is the campaigning work of the Labour backbencher Simon Danchuk. And without sort of going specifically into this subject area again, you think there is a pattern here of backbench MPs finding new power, finding new status. And you you really welcome that and what it means for the status of parliament in the nation. I think there's a... Interesting. We've had a, you know, the 2010 intake was a, a new breed of MP in a lot of cases. Some of them wanted desperately to be on the ministerial ladder, but Cameron does not reshuffle very often, so they haven't got on the ministerial ladder. And so they're actually finding other ways to make a difference. And it's not, I mean, I'm quite interested that you talked about Tom Watson, who I feel is quite a controversial figure. Mm. There's quite a lot of other backbench MPs who have very serious campaigns around this, uh, Stella Creasy around debt. There's all sorts of really people who are focusing on this. And what's really true is if if you're a backbench MP and if you focus, you can actually get things done. Um, I think that the other thing that's happened is that Mr. Speaker, who is Mr. Controversial, I see that there's yet another plot to get rid of him. I'll believe it when I see it. I've lived through at least 10 of these plots now. But he's really concentrated on making Parliament much more, the government more accountable to Parliament. Mm. And that is, you can really spot the difference. I mean, it used to be that some, a major news event would happen and we wouldn't talk about it in Parliament till like, days would go mm. by. And now, if there... Uh, when you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. 
This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. He's discovered the urgent question, which sounds bizarre, but it just means basically someone from anyone can ask a question mm. and a minister, if he it's grants cool it, the to, minister has to come yeah. and talk about it. And one of the things you were impressed about the rise of the backbench is you call them europhobes. I think I call them eurosceptics. <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, perhaps one of the reasons why we have David Cameron moving so far on Europe is because the Speaker and the Backbench Business Committee gave time for backbench Tory rebels, 80-odd of them, to vote to have a referendum. And that has been a huge phenomenon in this There's no question about that. If Parliament were slightly less and the Speaker was slightly less willing to give time, that David Cameron's policy on Europe would be quite different in his attitude. I mean, he's very much been affected by this. And and he would admit it, I'm sure. And you can, you, But you can see it in Parliament. I mean, you still have quite a lot of the lick-spittling, but you don't have <laughs> as much. And what you also have along the sides of it is quite interesting campaigns by all sorts of people on issues that I think people actually really care about. Patrick, kid, this has been one of the most rebellious parliaments in the post-war period. Part of it is probably because we have our first coalition government since the, the Second World War. But there's a different, there is a different kind of backbencher, the speaker. It, a, a series of things seem to have come together, which do mean that we seem to have more independent MPs. Well, indeed. And the other thing, which is going to be even more apparent over the next year, is we've had very little legislation. We're going to have very little legislation come out to the next election. You have to fill the time somehow. Mm. And so that allows causes to be taken up. Mr. Speaker in the past just wouldn't have been able to accommodate them. But but now he can, as you say, allow urgent questions. I mean, I, I don't know what the, fa- the, the stats are on number of urgent questions compared to, say, a oh, previous nothing, parliament. I don't think it's anything to do with that. I actually don't think it's anything to do with uh, government business, which seems to flow and <laughs> ebb, at the moment ebbing quite a lot. Um, it's really just to do with um, the previous speaker was not that he, he wasn't that interested in holding the government to account, in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> so, D- Dan- D- Daniel Finkelstein, do you a accept um, Anne's thesis? And m- the question, perhaps, I'm more interested in you answering if it. Is it real? Do you welcome this fact that Parliament has this different status now that the executive has less power relative to backbenchers? Well, my my second answer is going to be related to my first. Yes, I completely agree with Anne's thesis. Mm -hmm. I think it's probably one of the most important developments. I also, in parenthesis, agree with her judgment about John Burko, whom I think has been a good speaker. I generally approve of, despite the fact that he's controversial. But I think what what we're seeing is a trend. It's something more fundamental than just what John Burko is doing. So the rebelliousness of this Parliament builds on the rebellion of the previous parliament. And it's all related to the fact that we're seeing a breakdown of uh, or, or the mass media becoming disintermediated. Political parties grew up in the area of, them, of the mass media in order to sort of get their policies onto the limited shelf space of these big blockbuster parties. And as that breaks down, and you know, even the political parties are getting small numbers mm. of votes, it's easier to be more um, more rebellious and independent because you can make your own appeals to the electorate and to individuals and gain your own methods of support and reach other people. You know, you can reach 80 people because you can email them all, for example. Mm-hmm. So it's easier to get 80 people together so in order to have a rebellion. Apart and we have these sort of outside groups like 38 Degrees with masses of email lists that lobby the MPs. Completely. Now, this links then to my second point. The question of whether I welcome it then becomes irrelevant because this <laughs> is a, a development 
development. Your opinions are never around. And, and what I would say is it has very good points and very and difficult ones. So I think it's generally a very good thing. But it is a fundamental challenge to our model of government. The model of government in which the Prime Minister is the person who can command a majority in the House of Commons um, rather than the manager of the executive arm of government is, I think, under severe challenge, both because of the complexity of the executive tasks, uh, which are hard to, to, to carry out with generalists, and because of the trend Dan talked about. And you've written in a previous piece about perhaps this leading to a need for a separation of powers in the that's, British That's the direction I think it's going. Well, for Times subscribers who are listening to this podcast, um, if they go to the times.co.uk slash comment central, you can not only listen to this podcast again and subscribe via iTunes, which I recommend, but you can also access some of the articles that we've been discussing or related to things that we've been discussing. And I'll certainly put um, Daniel's um, piece recommending the separation of powers up there for you to look at. But uh, Patrick, your topic, which is about the National Health Service. A short and, in, and easy one, just to <laughs> fill a couple of minutes. And then in, in Monday's Times, we had a letter from all sorts of health worthies that said we have a £30 billion hole uh, coming up in the National Health Service over the next few years, as big as the amount of money we spend on defence and something is going to have to give. Either the NHS is going to start to face serious delivery problems for patients or we're going to have to pay more tax or we're going to start having to be charged and I think you think we should pay some charges. Yes, I'm I'm all in favour of co-payments, top-up payments if you like. This actually, people talk about the NHS having principles that it should always be free. The NHS had only been around for one parliament when they introduced top-up charges. It was uh, Hugh Gateskill who said we should pay for prescriptions. This then moved into paying for, for dentists, for yeah. paying for opticians. They got rid of prescription charge in the 60s, and then Labour, again, were the ones who brought it back. So it's not always the evil mm-hmm. Tories wanting to charge more. And it strikes me as bonkers that you should pay when you're ill, in other words, when you need medicine, but not when you might be ill, when you go to see the doctor. Now, we're not talking about a huge amount of money here, and there would, of course, be exemptions for those who really don't have the cash. But actually, I would happily pay a tenner or something like that. I pay £18 to see my dentist. And if that means I get a better service, if it's more flexible times, if the relationship changes, well, I can actually feel I can complain when Mm -hmm. it's a bad service, which at the moment you don't get in the NHS. Try complaining to a receptionist about bad service. It strikes me it's something we should look at. We could also look at top-up charges elsewhere so that, uh, well, I want to see a Marks and Spencers in the foyer of every hospital so that people can feed themselves rather than relying on hospital cooks. Mm -hmm. I quite like to see Sky Sports in every hospital. A private room, if you want a private room, you pay for it. A sort of NHS plus, now people will moan and say, well, that means those with more money will do a bit better. Yes, they will, but if that allows the resources to be concentrated on what the NHS is great at, which is emergencies and long-term care, then I, I think it's worth considering. And you think the argument for, say, <coughs> being charged to see your GP isn't just that it will produce more money and that you will get a chance to moan if services aren't good, but you think it will also make people more responsible in how they use the National Health Service as well. They will turn up to appointments. They won't be frivolous in how yes. going to the GP only when they really need to go and see a GP. And not just a GP. There was, there was an article in the New Statesman recently, which you, you'd think would be naturally opposed to any form of tinkering with the sainted NHS, that su- had quotes from doctors suggesting that if you had a £10 charge to go to A&E that was refundable if you actually needed proper treatment, mm-hmm. that would have a, a, an impact. They reckon it would half the number of people going to A&E with spirit complaints. Children, yeah. Now, are, you, are, are you worried, though, that people who are 
genuinely ill but who don't have much money will be discouraged from going to the GP and end up perhaps costing the National Health Service more in the long run because complaints that won't be sort of nipped in the bud early will, will get worse. Well, sure. I mean, that's why you'd have exemptions for those who, who, who can't afford it. But when it costs me, say, £300 to take my car to the mechanic once a year, paying £10 to go to the doctor a couple of times when you've got a cough, it seems a perfectly reasonable amount of money to, to spend. But I know it's all about principle. So... Anne Treneman, this is a very logical case from Patrick. What do you think the chances of any of the political parties embracing this are? Zero. First of all, I I would just like to point out we do pay. Well, we do. (laughs) Quite a lot. For For just £100 a month, you don't don't, don't pay to go to see a GP. No, no, but we pay through our our taxes, yes, obviously. And and it's a great thing. And I have come from a country where the entire world is obsessed with their health care package. And... um, it is a completely different atmosphere. But I think one of the things like that Jeremy Hunt has tried to do is that he's tr- tried, just tried to get uh, hospitals to charge people who should be charged. So, like, Americans who come here should be charged if they go into A&E for the mm. treatment they get because yeah. they don't, you know, unless they have a reciprocal thing. Um, and it, they find it really difficult. When I bring this up with people, because I'm, when I have American friends come over, I always think they should pay. And mm. they agree. Yeah. Th- actually. But, you know, the, they don't like the people like, oh, we don't like to kind of mention it. <laughs> the well, doctors is like, it, we, you we mean don't. the NHS staff don't like. To, no. Yeah. And that's the, the one of the crucial issues is that that doctors don't want to be seen turning away people who need treatment for money. It's just mm-hmm. not in the ethos. So I think we could just start with that charging okay. people for what they should be charged for. Daniel Finkelstein, you and I have both written columns when we, in which we have argued that actually austerity is really only about halfway through. There's bigger cuts mm-hmm. to be made in the sense that the easiest hanging fruit has been plucked. Really difficult decisions lie ahead, either in terms of deeper cuts to welfare, which you know could be very problematical, higher taxes, or kind of co-payments, and perhaps all three. Yes. So I think the debate about cuts is going to become much more difficult, partly because the atmosphere in which they were first made, which was one that there was a national emergency, um, that's going to pass. And you're going to end up having to make the second half of the cuts um, in a much more difficult atmosphere. And people Um, think because the economy is growing... But crisis the, is over. Exactly. That's exactly going to be the problem. On the NHS, I think you, the first step in this argument has got to be to link the, co- the benefits somehow to costs. So I've been in favour of a hypothecated tax for the NHS, just simply to make clear to, to explain people. Explain what a hypothecated uh, 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 In other words, a, ta- the po- a portion of tax clearly identified would go to the National Health Service and you would be charged it as an NHS tax and it would be separately uh, outlined to people. And if the government wanted to raise spending on the NHS as a proportion of GDP uh, as opposed to letting it rise with tax revenues that have to say we're so going to So this would be a up. new tax or would you rebadge no, it would be re- it would be it would be taking the it would be finding an instrument to take the portion and there are technical difficulties but it's not impossible taking a proportion of the uh, current tax take and saying uh, that we allocate that to the National Health Service in proportion roughly to fund the NHS as it now is. And then as health costs rise as a proportion of GDP, it would become obvious to people that more tax would have to be paid. And that would at least link the debate about the cost of the NHS to tax. And it would mean that people couldn't just simply say we should spend more, the NHS is being cut, without proposing to increase tax to pay for it. Um, Patrick, 
as an alternative solution, um, that would certainly make the NHS, the cost of the NHS clearer to people, but it wouldn't link the individual responsibility to payment for the National Health Service, which a charge would do. So you would still favour, I assume, charging individuals for using specific NHS services than actually a wider hypothecated yes, tax of the kind Danny described. Yes, although the, Danny's point is, is very valid. There was a proposal about two years ago, I think, from George Osborne that your tax return would have a pie chart that would show exactly where your, your taxes had gone. Nothing's... Well, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think anything happened with that. I, th- I think it'd be great if people were aware I think that... You, I think you mentioned it in a budget. I think it is to be delivered. To be but delivered. Just, but it takes a little while in Whitehall to make these things happen. I, I think it's easy to con yourself that the NHS is free. As Alan mm. Bennett says 60 years ago in Beyond the Fringe, under the NHS for just six and fourpence a week, we, we get health completely free. Mm. But I think it, we need to go further. We need to acknowledge that what we pay through tax provides the basic service, NHS basic. And if you want an improved service for non-emergency, non-long-term issues, then you should have the the ability to top up for that. Well, okay. Well, if but no politician will go for that. No. Well, well, they if might we, if we had if we uh, well, hypothesis would open that up. Yeah. Well, if you have comments on that topic, as I'm sure you might, or any other topic, please do go to the times.co.uk/commentcentre and you can leave comments underneath that blog, and uh, we'll try and read out some of them next week. But Anne, Patrick, uh, Danny, thank you very much. Thanks to Dave McGuire, my producer. Most of all, thank you to you for listening. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Super Light Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So what can you do in a super light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com. Code SUPER24.